and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say without fear or favour. My name's Adrian Goldberg. This week, the war on the woke. Never mind dealing with the pandemic or the economy, ministers are taking an extraordinary interest in what we say and hear. There are plans, for example, to create a free speech champion to end what it calls cancel culture on campus. Universities, colleges and student unions who ban what they regard as hate speakers could be fined. Byline Times journalist Nafiz Ahmed has been investigating what really lies behind the idea. What concerns me is that the free speech champion idea is really motivated by these concerns which are about controlling and shutting down radical thinking, thinking outside the box, thinking which challenges power, challenges these, these existing institutions, challenges white nationalism and white supremacism. And although the government says it's opposed to cancel culture, we'll hear from an academic whose project, tracing the links between national trust buildings and British colonialism, has uh, been cancelled. It's sort of Orwellian, isn't it, really? It's a reversal. It's taking terms like academic freedom and then <laughs> curtailing it through intimidatory tactics and then saying that we need freedom of speech. It's, you couldn't really make it up. Plus something that has been not made up, but certainly exaggerated, the threat from Muslim grooming gangs. Have groups of men from predominantly South Asian backgrounds exploited vulnerable girls? Yes, certainly. Does that tell the whole story of child sex abuse in Britain? Far from it. But it's a narrative loyally upheld by numerous newspaper editors and one which unites Home Secretary Priti Patel with groups on the far right. This isn't about caring about victims. This is sort of asserting ownership and seeing sexual violence as the threat from the other coming to take away from us. And in doing that, it it raises so many victims. I mean, it is, quite frankly, I think it's deeply offensive to victims and survivors of child sexual abuse. All that to come. First, just some gentle encouragement for you to subscribe to our monthly paper, The Byline Times. We don't have the financial backing of any media mogul or corporate sponsors, nor, frankly, do we want them. Instead, we prefer to rely on people like you. A subscription to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, costs just £36 a year. And as well as getting the paper, you'll be helping to fund our website, Byline TV and this podcast. You'll find more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Now, you might think that to be woke would be a good thing. Better than being asleep, surely. To be woke, as I understand it, means that you have a social conscience and are aware of the many historical injustices, especially around race and gender, that have shaped the world we live in. But the government and its cheerleaders in the right-wing press, as well as an army of online agitators, use woke as a term of abuse. Go figure. When Education Secretary Gavin Williamson announced plans for a free speech champion at British universities, it was hailed by supporters as the latest salvo in the war on the woke, who, it is claimed, are responsible for a cancel culture on campus, which restricts freedom of expression. Hmm. Byline Times reporter Nafiz Ahmed has been investigating the dubious origins of this latest initiative. The whole idea of appointing a free speech champion at the office for students who would then investigate perhaps witch hunt style universities accused of breaching freedom of speech didn't actually come from the government. It came from the policy exchange think tank and they did a report two years ago. Now, interestingly enough, that report was written by a policy exchange staffer, but also was co-authored by a guy called Eric Kaufman who is now quite well known for essentially kind of rationalising and justifying white identity politics as a completely normal response to the perception of rising ethnic diversity. So somehow lots and lots of increasing numbers of people who have slightly different skin colours or maybe different skin colours altogether somehow automatically creates this threat perception amongst white people. 
This is essentially his thesis. He tries to back it up statistically. Just want to throw in there, by the way, that there's lots of studies that actually debunk this idea. There was one big one in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which suggested that that's just not true. The statistics aren't as simple as that. I mean, it actually might be the opposite. But anyway, the point being, Eric Kaufman was one of the guys involved in this. Now, this is significant because Kaufman would go on to join Toby Young's Free Speech Union when he launched it in February. He became an advisor to Young. Now, within that month on February when Toby Young launched it, he actually referred directly to Kaufman's paper and said, this is great, this idea of a free speech champion. So in other words, this whole idea that the government's put forward is directly linked to Toby Young, who, of course, is the disgraced former Office for Students appointee, who I think was in the role for less than 24 hours after people pointed out, using their free speech, that he was basically involved in all sorts of ridiculous, pathetic, discriminatory, awful, misogynist, sexist, racist, ableist, all kinds of tweets, basically, which essentially led him to resign because it was just untenable. So that's the, the Toby Young Free Speech Union direct connection. Now, what's also weird is that, and I've been looking into this for the last few months because a couple of students approached me saying that, well, Nafiz, we've been asked by Free Speech Union to set up a network of students and it's been called Free Speech Champions. And in that process, they went to The Guardian. The Guardian covered this. They reported that a lot of these students had resigned from this network saying that they had originally been approached that it would be a student-led thing, it would be grassroots. And in the end, I think a third of them left it, saying that they felt this was just an astroturfed front for Toby Young. To the point that even the, the name of the group, Free Speech Champions, was actually unilaterally decided by the FSU, despite going through the motions of setting up a Google Doc and having a big workshop and discussions about the, the name, then it was like, no, well, in the end, we're going to go for free speech champion. And ironically, months before they had actually announced that and, and had told the students, well, this is the name we're going to go with, Toby Young had actually done a podcast with Darren Grimes of nodding while David Starkey is talking about black people and slavery and saying that there was no slavery because so many damn blacks survived. So, that's the Darren Grimes. He was announcing with this new project. And he said, we're going to launch Free Speech Champions Network. And it's a student's network. So it was very clear to them at that point, I think, that they didn't have control over what they were doing, really. It wasn't really student-led at all. It was designed in that way to make them feel that it was. And somebody else connected with the Free Speech Union, their Education and Events Director, Dr. Jan McVarish, took a role in these supposedly student-led free speech union meetings. Yes. So on the one hand, of course, it was Inaya Falarin Iman, who is a board director at Toby Young's Free Speech Union. She's a director at the company alongside Young, Douglas Murray, others. She was the one that initiated the outreach to the students and said, we're setting this up. And her colleague, Dr. Jan McVarish, who is a fellow at the University of Kent, academic, she's an events and education director at the Free Speech Union. And I think it was, it was Harry Walker from Bristol Free Speech Society who said she was inexplicably sitting on, on all the meetings, even though they were told that, look, this was just kind of an institutional kind of support some funding support, but you know, it's ultimately the students would be the ones directly involved. But they were, they were really policing this, steering this from the beginning. And one of the most obvious indicators of the agenda was when they were talking about words like sexism, racism, homophobia. And uh, clear from the WhatsApp logs that were shared with me by the students that in reality, this wasn't an effort to have real free speech because Jan McVarish made very, very clear that words like sexism, racism, and homophobia, she said, shut down free speech. You shouldn't really use them. She discouraged them from using those words. And she said, these are phobia words, words that are based on the side that there's an irrational fear. And she actually said, there's nothing irrational about someone who might express homophobia. There's nothing irrational about that at all. 
It's just bizarre. I mean, the whole thing's bizarre. I mean, I, I, the whole conversation is bizarre. I mean, what what's the parameters for this conversation? I don't get it. But it's clear. I mean, the students were being encouraged to define free speech in a way which excluded certain types of speech. And if they consisted on that, that kind of speech, then they were shut down. And that's actually what the students described. So there was a letter that I think six or seven of the students sent, I can't remember the exact number, towards the end of the process. And they said, look, you know, we've, we've come to the conclusion, you know, we really support the idea of free speech, but we can't be involved because what we've seen is this consistent shutting down of us. Whenever we're talking about those kinds of issues, we're kind of discouraged and we're just essentially not heard at all. We're not allowed to question the parameters of how free speech should be defined as the free speech union have defined it. The moment we question it, we're shut down and we're ridiculed and the conversation doesn't go anywhere, which is extraordinary because this is supposed to be about the robust exchange of ideas, right? So we have Toby Young, who was associated professionally in the past with people who have argued that black people have a lower IQ than white people. You've got Kaufman, who's been involved in an intellectual version of white identity politics. And you have Jan McVarish attempting to set the parameters for what is and isn't acceptable free speech. And you have the free speech champion name coming from this group. What do you think this tells us about the free speech champion that Gavin Williamson has introduced? It seems really clear to me that this is an effort. It's almost like, I mean, I use the term an alt-right pincer movement. It seems that this idea has been in the making for a while. It's an effort to control the discourse at universities. Universities are clearly seen as a threat to the government's kind of control of the discourse. And I think they're very concerned by the fact that they are losing credibility and one of the simplest ways to kind of try and gain that credibility back, I think, is for them to rile their base. So this is a very Trumpist manoeuvre. You know, it's focusing on their narrow support base. So they're doubling down on this in, in an extraordinary way in a way we've not seen before. And what concerns me is that the free speech champion idea is really motivated by these concerns, which are about controlling and shutting down radical thinking, thinking outside the box, thinking which challenges power, challenges these these existing institutions, challenges white nationalism and white supremacism. The drift of the thinkers, the ideologues behind this idea then is against progressive thought and it is encouraging free speech around issues such as homophobia, around racism, but not free speech around questioning the structures of power in society. Exactly. Nafiz Ahmed. And you can read much more about this story and plenty of other great investigations by Nafiz at Byline Times, which, let me politely remind you, is funded by the generosity of people like you, our subscribers. Subscriptions start at just £36 a year for our fab monthly paper, The Byline Times. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. Now, the same politicians and newspapers who've become fierce advocates of free speech on campus seem less enamoured of it when historians turn up uncomfortable truths about the British Empire, as Leicester University academic Corinne Fowler discovered to her cost. Corinne faced the full wrath of the right-wing media after a group of Conservative MPs complained about a lottery-funded education project she was running, exploring the links between National Trust properties and colonialism. She has since been falsely accused of saying that gardening is racist and, rather less comically, has faced serious threats to her safety. Alongside her, Byline Times editor Hadeep Matharu, who has written about Britain's failure to deal with the legacy of empire. First, though, Corin on how an unassuming historian from the Midlands came to be seen as public enemy number one. Well, I've got a small project called Colonial Countryside, and as part of that, I ended up being seconded to the National Trust and working on a report on country houses, connections to the East India Company and 
the Caribbean and, and to transatlantic slavery. And the initial response to that report was fairly positive. But then there was a group of 56 MPs who called themselves the Common Sense Group, which was formed in the summer, and they declared a culture war. And they focused in on this National Trust report. So there were speeches in Parliament, there were two parliamentary debates about the National Trust. And then eventually there was a challenge from, or a potential challenge from the Charity Commission saying that the National Trust had breached its remit by researching its own properties, even though it's a research organisation, it's an independent research organisation. And so what happened gradually, gradually, the attacks focused in more and more on me and my projects and my team of researchers on colonial countryside. And so there have been about 135 newspaper articles about my projects, my work, the National Trust work that I collaborated on. And the reports, a lot of them are inaccurate, didn't give me a right of reply or any of my historians published our photographs without a permission from Facebook. Our intellectual hefts questioned, we got called one-sided and woke. They then focused in on my book, which happened to come out in December, and falsely reported that I said gardening was racist. And that, that generated about 300 abusive comments and emails. So you can imagine the volume of it after so many articles. And the um, the worst of it was that the Daily Mail, the Times and the Spectator all on the same day accused us of being politically partial academics as if we were being political by investigating our 400 years of colonial history, which is in any case our specialism. We're just doing our job. What was it about your research that these MPs and newspapers found offensive? They said that we were denigrating British history and that our work was one-sided and obsessed with colonialism. But our point was that we're just researching our area of expertise. And if new discoveries have found that a lot of country houses have strong connections to empire, that's then relevant to their history so, for example, if Penryn Castle was built with money from Jamaica sugar plantations and the local quarry too, which belonged to the family, then that ought to be integral to the historical account of that site, simply because it's relevant, not because we're on any political crusade. So if there are National Trust properties that are linked in some way to colonialism, then it's part of the story of that property. And your job was just to research that and then help the public understand that. That's right. So we were just simply providing more information about country houses connections to the rest of the world, which is an activity which is about providing information which may be of interest to visitors. What other connections with colonialism did you discover? I was working with a, a team of historians from the Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project, some of them, and some from an East India Company project, at home project. And they had found that, for example, Basildon Park was built by a man who made a fortune with the East India Company and then returned and built the grounds, brought back an Indian servant, and that Indian servant married a, a local woman. The records show some National Trust volunteers looked into that. So there's that. And then on the other side, there's places like Speak Hall, which was only ever owned by two families, both of which had an involvement with slave trading and the second owner having an involvement with every single aspect of the slavery business. So that seems to me quite important to say if that's integral to the history of the house. And that was the idea that we were providing good quality information, working with children to get their views on those sites and what it meant to them and what the history meant to them. And also commissioning artists to bring those histories to life in ways that would get away from that dry, convoluted story that might not be interesting to visitors unless you really humanise those stories and put the life back into them. Did you expect anything like the backlash that you experienced? 
No, I mean, my my project was considered a really charming education and arts project for two years and was reported on multiple times really favourably because people found it sort of enchanting. As I was working with quite young children, they were getting really passionate about history, having children's conferences, talking to heritage professionals and so on. But then it took a bit of a toxic turn around the summer with these protests about statues when we suddenly started asking kind of more urgent questions about which people do we honour in our public spaces? What should we do about it? And there's no agreement about that amongst historians. Um, It's a complicated question and it's something that historians can help with most definitely. But uh, no, I certainly didn't expect the ferocity of it. I didn't expect to be public enemy number one to 56 common sense MPs. And Hardeep, we've commented before on the Byline Times podcast about the great ignorance there is out there amongst the British people, and I include myself in that, about empire. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely an imperial amnesia when it comes to Britain's colonial past. I mean, I think what's happening now is very much the weaponization of that history as part of this wider anti-woke crusade that the government is actually is actually leading on. So, you know, we've seen attacks on journalists, then we've seen attacks on what the Home Office call activist lawyers. And now we're seeing attacks on historians who are apparently rewriting history just because they're trying to present a more factually accurate record of, of this nation's past. You know, and that, that is increasingly becoming very concerning when, you know, people like Corin talk about the fact that they've had to go to the police over threats that they've received just for doing their job. And, you know, I, and I first met Corin about a year and a half ago, I accompanied her on one of her, her visits as part of the Colonial Countryside Project, where she took some school children in London to a local um, historic house. And they had half a day there exploring the sort of colonial history of it. And there was, you know, there's no brainwashing involved. It was a school trip like any other. It wasn't that the kids were being told things that weren't true or myths. They were just being told the facts. They were very excited. I would say highly motivated. It was a very normal thing to be doing. And I do fear, Adrian, that these conversations that, yes, we've had before about the lack of understanding around empire, they're now coming into this wider sort of shift. And that shift is creating a wider cultural hostile environment in which certain people who are trying to maybe, you know, present a more, like I said, historically accurate, diverse, nuanced view and a truthful view of what what really happened and, you know, how Britain has come to see itself in the way it has, you know, they're being attacked. And we saw divisions, you know, being created with the Brexit project. And I've sort of written that, you know, that divide and rule was always the old imperial tool. You know, Boris Johnson is a very imperial prime minister. He's very beloved of the, the British Empire. And so all those divisions that were stoked up about sort of in that case, sort of outsider others, so immigrants, EU, you know, movement, um, all those kind of divisions which were stoked up and the divide and rule around that is now being carried forward in this anti-woke agenda where the others are the kind of woke others within the country. And the reality of Brexit is hitting. You know, businesses are losing business overnight. You see more than 100,000 people have died with the coronavirus in this country. And there are serious questions around both of these things. There are economic consequences of both Brexit and the COVID crisis. And yet now is the, the time when the government is announcing a free speech champion. And now is the time when projects like Corrin's are being questioned and heritage institutions are going to be summoned and the government's going to talk to all these organisations about not getting involved in rewriting history. We've got another review that the government said it is going to conduct around left-wing extremism, looking at Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion. And so we've, what we've really got is something Corin said to me in an interview I did with her on this subject for Byline Times. The bigger fear, actually, is it's it's kind of rolling back progress because if you create a hostile enough environment for people of colour, for women, for people with disabilities, for people who may have an identity that 
is sort of multiplicity as opposed to one fixed identity associated with the country they live in, i.e. Britain. If you create a hostile enough environment, the fear is people will think they've got to step back. And the government very much is weaponizing history and weaponizing myth. And these two things are being conflated. And it is very worrying, uh, the impacts that are happening. Older listeners may remember when Greece was the word. Now, woke is the word, isn't it? We've got Robert Jenrick, the housing communities and local government secretary, writing in the Telegraph, we will save our history from woke militants. We've got Andrew Neil talking about the launch of his forthcoming GB News channel, saying he's launching it because he thinks the direction of news debate in Britain is increasingly woke and out of touch. What do you think they mean by woke? Well, originally, woke was a term that I understand originated in US black culture, which always meant people who are woke are awake to social and racial inequalities and injustices, and they're fighting to eradicate them. But that term has completely been co-opted. We see it very prominently in America around the Make America Great movement with Donald Trump, but increasingly here as well. So it's really just someone who's interested in looking at the structural ills in a society and what can be done to level the playing field. I think the way the term is now being used, not only by the government, but certain elements of the press, is it's people who are unpatriotic, who want to do the country down, who are ashamed of what Britain is and the values that it has, people who are looking too much to give preference to certain minority groups over the population at large, which apparently has become oppressed because other minority groups have been making gains. So I think what it's come to symbolise is almost the enemy within that's the message, that we have certain people within our own society that are not getting on board with supporting Britain and what we are and what we should keep being. And that's very far from the original term, which was a very specific reference to justice issues, essentially. I completely agree. And I think that we should all be concerned when there are attempts to sanitise our national history in the name of not sanitising it and attempts to call our work political when it's not party political in any way and trying to cancel research projects. I mean, it was announced the other day in a newspaper that apparently my Colonial Countryside project will not be funded anymore. I mean, who decided that? And also, it, you know, it's really worrying when these terms are used to dismiss people straight away and to stop people from listening to anything that anybody else has to say and sort of scare us all away from producing new types of projects in this vein in the name of quashing cancel culture. I mean, it, it's just, it's sort of Orwellian, isn't it, really? It's a reversal. It's taking terms like academic freedom and then... <laughs> curtailing it through intimidatory tactics and then saying that we need freedom of speech. It's, you couldn't really make it up. Yeah, the government has announced this freedom champion to stop cancel culture on campus, but you, as an academic doing your job, appear to be being cancelled. Yeah, I mean, I think I know a few things about being cancelled. With all the intimidation I've had since September 2020 on a weekly and mostly at weekends sort of basis it's just got worse and worse and I, I definitely don't think that one side has got the monopoly on cancel culture and we need to all stop it we need to respect one another to listen to what each other has to say with open minds and then we can have a really stimulating enriching conversation across cultures, across generations and across all these political divides. But you have been threatened to the extent that you've had to go to the police. Yeah, I've, I've got a growing number of crime reports and I just don't think that a civilised society behaves in this way. I almost couldn't say on radio the, the, the lengths to which people go to imagine all kinds of tortuous things that could be 
could be done to me. It's really quite creative. And I think that there are a lot of good potential horror novelists out there <laughs> who are writing these emails. Do you mind telling me what kind of threats have you had? Um, I'm a bit, I mean, per- threats to my personal safety, basically, that I'm not, I'm not safe. I can't go walking on my own. I think I should be free to be able to go out for a walk on my own without worrying about being attacked and based on the threats that I've had. And Hardeep, this idea of woke then, of being socially conscious, being aware of structural inequality, being considerate to the feelings and needs of minorities, that's something I'd say, where do I sign up? If, if that's what woke is, I'm in. What's the problem? Unfortunately, in this country, we do need to admit that collectively there does seem to be a myth around what Britain is, has been and will be in the future. We saw that all around Brexit, Great Britain. And it is ripe, you know, that framing is ripe to sort of use to kind of deflect people, to distract them and to perhaps make them believe in putting themselves behind something that's not actually in their own best interests. We shouldn't lose hope because there are so many people who want a level playing field. They don't like poverty. They don't like racism. They don't like sexism. They want people to have a fair chance. And the younger generation particularly thinks like that. And we should be very careful of allowing people to purport to speak for everybody because they don't. Wise words from Corin Fowler, and before that, Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu. This story wasn't a one-off either. Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden criticised the National Trust last year for pointing out that as well as being a great wartime leader, Winston Churchill was Prime Minister during the Bengal Famine, which saw more than two million British subjects die in India. Dowden has now summoned more than two dozen heritage bodies to a meeting to discuss how they represent Britain's past, which The Telegraph described as British culture's last stand against woke zealotry. Now, it might also be considered woke to point out that while groups of men of South Asian heritage in Britain have sometimes subjected vulnerable girls to horrendous sexual abuse, these kind of offenders only represent a minority of perpetrators. The narrative of Muslim grooming gangs is so pervasive that I'll admit I've referenced it more than once as a BBC broadcaster without it ever being questioned by my producers. Yet a Home Office report in December 2020 confirms that headline-making cases like Rochdale and Rotherham are really not typical. Home Secretary Priti Patel described those findings as disappointing. And when she unveiled the government's new child abuse strategy the following month, she allocated funding to further investigate grooming gangs. Professor Brian Cathcart of Kingston University has spent the best part of a decade debunking the idea that these admittedly terrible incidents are in any way commonplace. We'll hear from Brian after Dr Ella Cobain from UCL in London, who's carried out extensive research in this area. What's really complicated here is there obviously have been some absolutely horrific cases that very much conform to stereotypes around grooming gangs. But what is the issue and the kind of real moral panic that's going around here is this idea that there's a specific crime type of grooming gangs and that's very much something that's been driven by the media and politicians over the last decade or so. The offenders are real and what I think is really really important here is in trying to challenge the narrative around grooming gangs, that mustn't become about undermining real harms that have been done to real people. So you're not saying that there haven't been grooming gangs and gangs of predominantly South Asian origin, but that that only tells a tiny part of the bigger story of child sexual abuse. Exactly. And I take issue with the phrase grooming gangs itself because it's 
unhelpful it's inaccurate and right from the very start it is deeply deeply racialized so it sort of acts as a code word for muslim rape gangs or asian sex gangs and we saw this really obviously recently in the parliamentary debate on the grooming gangs petition where several politicians sort of started adopting the language of the far right and saying you know we're talking here about our girls and their our girls was explicitly in reference to so-called white British working class girls and specifically saying that, you know, they understood grooming gangs as primarily an issue of uh, Pakistani heritage Muslim men. So that's been, it's right from the start, this issue has kind of been constructed around what seems to be a sort of predetermined racial crime threat. It's a difficult and nuanced argument then isn't it because there will be people listening to this and saying that look there really have been gangs some members of those gangs have been of south asian origin and some of them have been muslim you're not saying that those specific instances haven't happened or don't exist no, exactly. And what I'm saying is right from the start, from when Andrew Norfolk launched this in The Times and claimed there was, you know, a tidal wave of offending sweeping the nation and characterised it as this new racial crime threat of what he called on-street grooming, the numbers that are held up to support this narrative are very, very small in the context of the broader problem of child sexual abuse, which genuinely is epidemic in this country and elsewhere. So, you know, what we have is several very high profile, very nasty cases that conform to the stereotypes. And of course they deserve attention, but they should not be allowed to attract this sort of disproportionate focus that takes attention away from the fact that actually child sexual abuse occurs on a huge scale, affects a really wide range of victims and involves a really wide range of offenders. So if I can just give you some statistics just for the sake of context, in 2019-20, the police recorded almost 75,000 child sex offences. And Full Fact did some good digging on this and found that in 2015, 6,500 people were prosecuted for child sex offences. Yet the numbers that are held up as the sort of supposed statistical proof of the grooming gang's narrative are 56 offenders that The Times looked at over a period of 14 years or 264 offenders that the Quilliam Foundation looked at over a period of 12 years. So you can see how it's like really, really quite a tiny, tiny proportion of a much, much bigger issue. And I think that's what makes this really a sort of quintessential moral panic. What do we know about the ethnicity of people who abuse children, traffic children for abuse? I mean, the vast majority of child sex offenders in this country are white, which makes sense given that it's a majority white country. Again, Full Fact did some digging on this and they found that Asian people were not overrepresented among people prosecuted for sexual offences in general or child sexual offences in particular. And I know that the pushback one often gets in this area, particularly from the far right, is, oh, yeah, but Asian, you know, it's such a big category. And we're not talking about Chinese people. We're talking about Pakistanis. And, you know, this is a Muslim problem. But the issue is, again, the numbers are very small. And also religion isn't something that data is collected on for crime data. The vast majority of child sexual abuse happens in the home and it's overwhelmingly perpetrated by someone close to the victim, so a family member, a friend, or someone in a position of authority like a teacher. Things are changing somewhat with the internet because of obviously the proliferation of offences online, so that may well change the fact that in the past, typically the vast majority of child sex offences were committed alone by offenders, that may well change with the internet because people are increasingly networked in that way. Data isn't really there as yet to say with real authority. Brian, you believe that what Ella describes as a moral panic around so-called grooming gangs originates with an article in the Times newspaper written in 2011 by the award-winning journalist Andrew Norfolk. Tell me more about that. 
This is an article that appeared under the headline Conspiracy of Silence on the front page, and it purported to be a substantial investigation which had combed through essentially newspaper and court records over, I think, a period of 14 years and had found a number of cases of these group activities involving mostly Muslim men, mostly men of Pakistani background. And it asserted that the public had simply not been told about this, partly because the investigating authorities did not want to be accused of racism. So there was this conspiracy of silence, and actually that some of the cases were not pursued properly, as indeed proved to be the case, but we'll come back to that. And that the whole thing was a kind of trapped in a frame of political correctness, so that the society was paralyzed and prevented from addressing this racialized sex threat to white women, to young white girls. This is the origin of grooming gangs. He didn't use the term grooming gangs. He talked about on-street grooming. Now, essentially, this was an exercise in cherry-picking. He found a kind of crime which he believed was new and specific, and then he looked for other crimes like it. Then he defined this as a problem and pitched it, as it were, to the public on the front page of the Times. Now, the problem with this was, as you've heard, this kind of crime was a drop in the ocean. Over 14 years, looking at the kind of conviction rates that that Ella has been talking about, there are tens of thousands of crimes like this, very possibly hundreds of thousands of crimes like this, certainly tens of thousands of convictions, hundreds of thousands of crimes. The idea that 56 men might constitute a threat, is not realistic. But it fed into, frankly, a historic racial narrative about crime, not just in this country, but worldwide. So I'm old enough to remember when the racialized threat was mugging. Black men were supposed to conduct a particular kind of crime in the street, and this was a big problem. And this myth supported stop and search, the sus law and the stop and search laws that we still have today. And it's similar as well to the blood libel that used to be leveled against Jews. Indeed, it still sometimes is leveled against Jews by fanatics. The idea that Jews ritually murder Gentile children for their blood. This goes back to the Middle Ages. And yet we don't seem to be much better now because that is exactly how the right, the far right now portrays grooming gangs. Like Brian said, this is very much about women and children as property and as territory. This isn't about caring about victims. This is sort of asserting ownership and seeing sexual violence as the threat from the other coming to take away from us. And in doing that, it erases so many victims. I mean, it is quite frankly, I think it's deeply offensive to victims and survivors of child sexual abuse. We know from reliable national data from the Office of National Statistics that at least 4% of men and 12% of women were sexually abused as children. That's 3.1 million adult survivors of child sexual abuse in the UK at a minimum. So to suggest that the grooming of white girls by Asian men is the primary or only issue that should be focused upon is horrendously insulting to everyone else that has experienced and continues to experience child sexual abuse. And it stops much needed systemic changes. But again, to the point that Brian made about the way in which Norfolk was sort of cherry picking cases, right from the start, Norfolk excluded boys from his definition. So it was only instances involving the abuse of girls. He excluded abuse online, he excluded abuse in the family, he excluded abuse in schools and other institutions. And that kind of really narrow focus that's never been properly explained or justified has really kind of persisted over the last decade and shaped um, various kind of national inquiries and other pieces of research in this area, right up to the Home Office's so-called Grooming Gangs report that came out in December that again, you know, its focus was on group-based child sexual exploitation in the community. But to all intents and purposes, apart from the fact that the age range was widened and it could include boys as well, it was very similar to Norfolk's original focus. And this is, you know, politically driven. This isn't about 
what is analytically useful or genuinely a helpful way to analyse and address child sexual abuse. The Home Office strategy has inspired headlines like one in The Telegraph saying grooming gangs to be put under the spotlight in new Home Office strategy to combat record levels of child abuse. You observe in your piece for the Byline Times that there is a a dissonance between the press release and the comments of Priti Patel and the findings in the report that the Home Office itself has conducted. Massively so. I mean, that Telegraph headline very much, I think, gives the impression that the record levels of abuse are stemming from so-called grooming gangs. Whereas if you actually look inside the strategy, the record levels of abuse are attributed to online abuse and increased risk within the home because of COVID. It's that kind of sneaky sort of weaselish framing that pushes the reader to think This is much more of a problem than it is. But also, to be fair, grooming gangs were singled out in the strategy, which in itself is very concerning. I mean, this is the first national strategy there's been for England and Wales focusing on child sexual abuse in its entirety, despite the fact that this issue has been designated as a national threat since 2015. Now, in many ways, it's good because it covers all different forms of child sexual abuse. But then for some reason, which I assume must be political, So-called grooming gangs are singled out for several pages of attention and specific measures are proposed. This issue that aren't set out for other issues, like, for example, racial profiling, specific ring fence funding for investigations into so-called grooming gangs, which, again, that's the only offline child sexual abuse in the UK that this kind of investigative funding has been allocated for. So there's a real risk of kind of really institutionalising racism in responses because of this. In some cases where victims had been abused, their allegations had not been taken seriously or their cases had not been processed properly. And that is sometimes attributed to political correctness on the part of local authorities, on the part of police. Do you think that there is any justification for that claim? I'm sure there is. I have no doubt there is. What you've got to do is fit it into the bigger picture, which is the total scale of this problem. So, yes, there have been appalling crimes. Yes, some of them have not been properly investigated. And it's perfectly possible, indeed, in my view, likely that some people didn't investigate them properly or didn't act properly because they were confused about what their obligations were because of a race issue. But you have to pause there and say that the overwhelming majority of child sexual exploitation cases are never even reported. This is a seriously underreported area. And where they are reported, the disparity between the number of convictions and the number of offences tells you something. It's one-tenth. We're lost in, in our ability as a society to deal with this crime at the moment. That's why our strategy is welcome. But a huge proportion goes under-responded to, should we say. And none of this alters the horror of the crimes which have made the headlines. But we have to recognise that for every one of those crimes that made the headlines, there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands which are just as horrific, which never made the headlines. I agree with Brian. I I think it's entirely possible that in certain instances, misplaced fears of political correctness potentially played a role. But the idea that that in itself explains inadequate responses to so-called grooming gangs is completely nonsensical because this has been the hot topic for the last 10 years. There's been a history of over-policing ethnic minority communities. The If there were a barrier, it would be unlikely to be there anymore. And also the kind of facile, this is all about political correctness explanation, ignores the fact that until very recently, victims of child sexual exploitation were routinely dismissed as wayward and consenting child prostitutes. And the fact that they're being abused was only recognised pretty recently. And there are still pretty dreadful attitudes in many cases. 
and failings that run, you know, right through sections of the police, the Crown Prosecution Service, social work. This is a much, much bigger issue. If I could just come in there to say, it might be tempting to think that this is a minority view held by Dr. Ella Cobain of, of University College London. It's not. She has done a large amount of work on this, but the other academics have been in the field and come to similar conclusions. And most powerfully, that Home Office report. The significance of the Home Office report is huge because we have a 10-year narrative here, which the Home Office dedicated itself to supporting. That's to say, ministers dedicated themselves to supporting. They like this narrative and they wanted to endorse it. They recruited, as it were, the Home Office to prove it was true. And Home Office experts went to the data and they looked at it for a couple of years and came back with a report in December which said, look, there's no evidence to support this. We should remember that this is not a victimless narrative. This actually costs people's lives. There was an 81-year-old man of Yemeni origin, a perfectly innocent man, who was kicked to death in the streets of Rotherham in 2015 by people calling him a groomer. He was not a groomer. He was kicked to death because he was basically a Muslim man. The Christchurch killer, responsible for murdering more than 50 people in New Zealand, had four Rotherham written on one of his rifles. That is clearly a code for him for grooming gangs. And the Finsbury Park killer, Darren Osborne, was known to be obsessed about grooming gangs. This is not a harmless thing. This is deadly. Professor Brian Cathcart, and before that, Dr Ella Cobain, who also wanted to credit Dr Wackus Tufail for their research together. I did attempt to contact Andrew Norfolk at the Times to get his response to what Brian and Ella said, but I've heard nothing back. My name's Adrian Goldberg. I guess you can call me woke. If there's a story you think we should be covering on the Byline Times podcast or in the Byline Times, do get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. That's goldbergradio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to the Byline Times podcast. See you next week.